Our text for this morning's message is John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. And so we'll be completing John chapter 5 as we continue through our series in the Gospel of John. I sent out the texts earlier in the week, and you had a chance to uh, perhaps look over them. But I'm going to read this section, and, and I will confess to you, as I read verses 31 to 47, if you are just hearing this maybe for the first time or maybe second time or whatever, Honestly, as you read through, it's easy to kind of lose track. Where are we going? What's this all about? It's, it's what I like to call sometimes dense. There's a lot of thoughts, but um, the more you spend digging in and, and kind of pulling out the threads, it starts to become a lot clearer, and we'll show that. But to get a sense of the overall passage, John chapter 5, starting at verse 31 to 47. Our Lord says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me. I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given to me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe." You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. I do not receive honor from you, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Uh, the title of the message for today is Witnesses to Christ. Remember, we had this, this scene where our Lord healed the man who was apparently lame. He, he, he couldn't get himself to the pool of water for 38 years. And the Lord he said, do you want to be healed? And he healed him. And then he told him, pick up your mat and go. And he picked up his mat and he was stopped by the, the Pharisees who, who said, um, you know, you shouldn't be carrying your mat on the Sabbath. That's work. Again, the Lord would not command him to break God's law. He wasn't breaking God's law of the Sabbath. He was breaking the Pharisaic additions to the law. Well, they wanted to know, who is it that told you to do this? And that leads to this confrontation with Jesus. And it's really remarkable. So often Jesus, when he speaks of himself, refers to the Son of Man, the Son of Man, or, or you know, kind of in the third person. You'll notice how much he speaks of himself um, right at the very beginning. 
if I bear witness of myself. So he is, he is giving a very gracious and full um, showing of himself and enlisting one witness after another. He begins by saying, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now, we might, you might look at that instantly and say, wait a minute, how can, or does Jesus say he doesn't tell the truth? Well, he's speaking in terms of um, the legal codes and the practices. If someone you know, gave their own testimony concerning their innocence, that doesn't weigh very heavily because so many times people would declare their own innocence. We need other witnesses. Now, later on, I'll even read in, that, in John chapter 8, verse 14, it says, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. So his words are true, but he's saying, I, I know in terms of the court uh, of law, in terms of the practice of the people, it takes more than one testimony to verify something. And so he says, if I bear witness of myself, you know, my, you wouldn't consider my witness to be true. And so he doesn't just walk away and say, so forget it. He, he lays out the witnesses. And this is where I see just God, the Lord is just graciously laying out a demonstration of who he is. So in verses uh, 32 and following, he'll, he'll talk about John the Baptist, but you'll notice he says in, first, in verse 32, there's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he bears of me, is tr- which he witnesses of me, is true. Now, then he'll launch into a discussion of John the Baptist. But who is the witness in verse 32? He says, there's another who bears witness of me. I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Now, if you have the same translation I do, New King James or maybe some others, I have uh, uh, some cheater helps here. There's some pronouns are capitalized. Ah, the witness is God. Well, that's, of course, that doesn't work in the original Greek text. When it was actually originally written, it was all capitals. Do you know people that do that? They always write all capital letters. Uh, so, that's, so this is an interpretive decision, but I like it and I think it's correct. He's speaking of God the Father. Uh, that comes out, for example, notice he talks about he bears witness of me. He witnesses of me. So that's in the present tense. But then you look on uh, and about, verse, about John in verse 33. You've sent to John and he has borne witness. You see the difference? So the, the grammar points to the fact he's, when he's talking about this witness that, that he counts on, he's talking about his father. But he goes back and he starts laying his arguments and starts building up. He says, I, I know if I stand for myself, that doesn't, that doesn't count in the court of law. I do have a witness that's irrefutable. He's thinking of his father. But now he steps back and starts saying, now let me build my argument. John the Baptist. And so verse 33, you've sent to John and he was, he's borne witness to the truth. In verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. So all of that, that's different, past tense. And so when he says in verse 32, there's another, by the way, the word he uses for another, there's two different words. Heteros, another of a different sort. Alos, another of the same sort. 
He says, my God, the Father, is a witness of the same sort as Jesus. God the Father and God the Son are are of the same sort. And together they agree that Jesus is the divine Messiah. We'll get down to verse 33. You sent to John, he bore witness to the truth. John the Baptist was respected, uh, uh, especially among the crowd. Now, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they didn't like John the Baptist because he wasn't one of them. He wasn't a part of their system. Um, and so he was kind of a, a lone wolf, but they recognized the crowds saw him as a prophet. And, and so that's why they had to, they kind of, we see later, they were kind of careful with John the Baptist. Um, at one point, Jesus will say to them, you know, they're testing Jesus' authority. He says, well, I'll, before I answer that question, let me answer, ask you this question. He says, uh, by what authority did John the Baptist speak? And then you see the, the, the Jewish leaders get together and, and talk to one another. If we say he didn't have the authority to preach, we'll lose the crowd because they think he's a prophet. So they come back and they give a non-answer, which goes to show that politics is nothing new. But, but, but in other words, th- they may not have liked John, but he says, you sent to him. The crowds were going to him. They thought clearly he's speaking for God. And so you sent to him. And so you thought he was important. Verses 34 and 35. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Now he says, I'm going to talk to you about John the Baptist, but he says, I don't need man's testimony. But I do this so you may be saved. So he's saying, I'm going to condescend here. I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and, and, and use an argument that I don't really need. But since you listen to John the Baptist, or since many listen to John the Baptist, and you respected him in some way, I'll point out that he talked about me. And they probably knew that was true. If they brought in John the Baptist, he would have in a fiery way pointed at Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God. Prepare for the kingdom. Repent. And so they, they couldn't argue that. But it was, so he's saying, you want to know who I am? You even sent to John the Baptist. But he talked about me. But I don't need his testimony, but for your sake, I'll mention it. And then in verse uh, 35, he says, he was a burning and shining light. So Jesus does speak well of him. He brought light. And for a while, you rejoiced in his light. You know, for a little while, John was popular. But frankly, his bold call to repentance um, was a little hard to hear. It was an uncompromising call to repentance. So for a while, he was popular. And then eventually, you know, of course, Herod will arrest him and... He'll eventually be executed for preaching the message. But he starts with John and says, uh, there's one witness for me. And he continues and speaks of his own works in verse 36 as another testimony. I have a greater witness than John's. Again, the people back then thought he was great. And he was great. He was a prophet. But he says, I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. 
Remember, the, the people were, were eager to hear John the Baptist, something about his message, prepare, and prepared the way for the Lord. That kind of excited them. If the kingdom is coming, that means the Romans are going to be crushed. That was their attitude. They saw it more in a you know, political and deliverance, another Moses getting us out of Egypt. In this case, though, driving the Romans out of the promised land. They were excited about his message in that sense. After a while, he lost his popularity because he focused more on get your heart ready for the king. No, no, no. Let get, get back to crushing the Romans. But, but they did respect him and he did bring light. But there was something interesting about John the Baptist between John and Jesus. John never performed a miracle. He preached a message with power and faithfulness but did no miracles. But Jesus worked miracles. And there was no disputing that. What brought down this whole discussion? He healed a man that had been at the pools of Bethesda for, for who knows how long. He'd been, un- he'd been sick for 38 years. And so people, you know, people would have known and recognized him. And later on, you know, there, well, we'll see in chapter 9 when a man will be brought, born blind and Jesus will heal him. That doesn't happen. Um, and one thing after another, remember when, John, when Nicodemus went to see Jesus, uh, he said, no one could do the signs you do and not be from God. It's interesting, in later rabbinic writings, they, they don't deny that Jesus do, did miracles. They claimed he was a sorcerer or something. In other words, he was demonically empowered. But they don't dispute Jesus had supernatural power. And so Jesus points to his, his miracles and says, they verify I'm from God. We see a similar concept in, in speaking of the miracles the apostles did. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, uh, listen to what Hebrews 2, 3 and 4 says. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord Jesus, and was confirmed by those who heard him, the apostles, God bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles. So in other words, the, the miracles that the, the, the Lord did and the apostles did were to authenticate that their message was from God and they were from God. And so Jesus is saying, my miracles show you God is authenticating me. Jesus mentions that also at another point. John the Baptist, when he was in prison, um, started having some questions. He understood he was a herald of the king. Well, if Jesus is the king coming to establish his kingdom, why is John John's thinking, what am I doing in prison? And so he sent some of his disciples to go talk to Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Verses 19 through 22. In Luke 7, 19 through 22, we read this. And John, John B., John the Baptist, calling two of his disciples, sent to him Jesus, and sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Do you notice the repetition? Sign of a good messenger. 
At that very hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. You know, it's been argued that in many ways, Jesus wiped out illness in at least large portions of Israel. Jesus, after, so these, they came from John and said, are you the Messiah? And it said, right from that hour, he performed loads of miracles, loads of diseases. They saw lepers cleansed. They saw the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hearing. Then Jesus answers their question in verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. What's he saying? The miracles are God's authentication that he is the Messiah. See, in the Old Testament it said he would do these things. And Jesus is saying, I am doing the works of the Messiah. Go tell John what you have seen. A lot of times that's more powerful than words. You know, they could have gone back and just said, hey, he said yes, he's the one. And Jesus, so Jesus makes it powerfully clear. Just stand back and watch for a few hours. And then say, you go tell John what you saw. That will confirm it. Because remember, John couldn't do those things. But Jesus did. And so when Jesus is talking to the, the now again, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in miracles. So Jesus' miracles were a real problem to them. Um, but uh, Jesus could do miracles and did do miracles. So the Sadducees bothered them. That didn't fit their, their paradigm. The Pharisees believed in miracles, and they didn't dispute it. And so Jesus said, you want, you want confirmation of who I am? Look at the works I do that God has enabled me to do. Now, in verses 37 and 38, Jesus will say, And the Father himself bears witness. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. He said, God the Father has testified. Now, if you're remembering your grammar... Some of you kids in school may still be in. This is called a perfect tense. A perfect tense is past action with a continuing result. So God the Father has testified. What's he referring to? Some take this as, you know, like the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I think the better explanation is this is referring to the scriptures. God has testified by pointing to him. The scriptures make clear who the Messiah uh, is by what he will do and when he will come. And so Jesus is saying, the Father has testified of me. But he says, you've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Now, he testifies, but you've never heard him or seen him. How does he bear testimony? God's word. So no, God is not going to come into the courtroom and raise his right hand and say, I'm going to talk to you. But he's written out his testimony. And you have it. But it says, nor have they heeded his word. 
You do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You've you've not seen him or heard him, but you don't believe his word either. You do not have God's word abiding in you because whom he sent you do not believe. They had God's word with them. They had it in their scrolls. Now granted, honestly, we have God's word much more available to us. A handwritten scroll, and that's how the, what the biblical books were all handwritten on parchment. Um, those were not cheap. And so, of course, there were the scrolls of the Torah, the books, by the books of Moses in the, in the synagogue. And you could, you, know, you could have individual copies, but a lot of times they just memorized it as it was read in Scripture. And, and the synagogues had a, an annual pattern of reading through the scriptures so people would learn them. But they had God's word. It was there. It was available to them. They had it in their scrolls. And honestly, they had it in their memories. Most of them had memorized most, much, if not all, of the, certainly of the Pentateuch and, and other portions as well. Just flat out had it all memorized. I think I've told you about the time I... I was in my dorm room, and my roommate's uh, girlfriend came in, and uh, both of them were secular Jews. And and uh, you know he was an import. He'd made uh, his family had uh, immigrated from Canada, but he was Hebrew speaking Israeli. She was uh, what's called a sabra. She was born and bred and raised in Israel, so she'd grown up in the school system. And so you know we have English literature because that's our language. So they studied. Hebrew literature. You want to guess their textbook? The Bible. And so Hebrew poetry. The Psalms. And so we, had a, we played a little game. She would start quoting the Psalm in Hebrew, and I would try and guess which Psalm it was. So, but, but what just rattled me is, here's this secular Jew. I, I, she might, if you pushed her, she might have said God exists. But I mean, she was not in any way uh, a, a, an obedient an observant religious Jew. But she could quote psalm after psalm after psalm in Hebrew. Word perfect. So what I'm saying is, these rabbis, they knew the Bible. They didn't, by the way, typically use um, chapter numbers like we do at that time. They would just refer to the first words of a chapter. And then you knew what they were talking about. Like we could do that with like, a, um, like I might say, amazing grace, how sweet, and you could fill it in. The ice cream. No, the, the, the sound. <laughs> That's, but in other words, we know those things. Well, they knew God's word that way. And so as soon as they just read, you know, quoted the first few words of a verse, that, you know, you'd nod that, okay, I got your argument. I know where you're going with that. They, they had it written down. They had it memorized. So they read the word. And they memorized the word. But he said, but it's not in you. It's not abiding in you. It hasn't taken up residence in you. How in the world can you say that, Jesus? Name the book. I'll quote it. Start the verse. I'll finish it. What do you mean that's not, it doesn't abide in me? See, and here's, he's making a difference. There's a difference between reading the Bible, memorizing even the Bible, 
and having it abiding in your heart through faith. He said, God's word, and I've told you about the street evangelist back at Berkeley, and he would often say, you know, you're, you're 18 inches away from heaven. You got it here, but it's not here. Now, I've never taken out a tip measure to see if that's really 18 inches, but I'll, I'll take it by uh, faith for now. But his whole point was, you can have it here. And this is a struggle we in America have because for many generations, Christianity has been a kind of a tradition. But we can have it here and not here. And so he's telling these rabbinic scholars. You know, in my Hebrew text, when you get to the end of a a book, it'll tell you how many verses are in the book, how many words. It'll tell you the middle letter of the book. Oh, they they have it worked out. But it wasn't in their home of their heart. He says, how do you know that? Because you don't believe me. You don't believe in Jesus. And so there's a warning for us here. You can know about Christianity. You can know about Christ. You can be able to say true things about him and not have him. Not have a, a living and true faith and life in him. And so just as it wasn't enough for them to believe in Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea and those things, they had to know more than facts about Jesus. They didn't yield and trust in him as their savior. And so he says, if that's the case, then God's word may be in your mind, but it's not in your heart. Um, I did some, just looking for a quick example, you know, the Jews have often called the people of the book. Uh, they are, you know, the, you know from, the, from, from all ages, the Jewish people learn the scriptures. You know, often they'll, you'll, you'll, you'll hear talk about, oh, the, the disciples, they were probably illiterate. Per, anyone who would say that just doesn't know anything about the history of, and, the, and the Jewish people. From the earliest days, they were in the synagogue. They were learning the Hebrew language, even if that wasn't their home language. They were learning Hebrew so they could read the scriptures in the Hebrew tongue. At the bar mitzvah, when a boy turned 13... That's when they had the ceremony. He would become a son of the law. He would come and he would read from the Torah scroll in front of the church, the synagogue. But the point is they could read. They were people of the book. And many have said that's one reason the Jewish people have tend to do so well throughout history. Because where the population around them might be illiterate, the Jewish people have always been a people of the book. I got this from a Jewish website, a very um, uh, conservative, orthodox, a uh, very orthodox website. To the Jewish people, the Torah is more than a source of wisdom or a guide to life. Rather, it is a living, breathing partner with whom we enter into a lifelong relationship. The Talmud, that's their later oral that's a collection of later oral rabbinic traditions, refers to the bond between the Jewish people and the Torah as one between a a betrothed couple. And so they say, oh yeah, the Bible is very, but but they then go on to say, and the Bible is just the same as all our traditions. Oh, it's living and breathing. But, so that's what the claim would be. But Jesus would say to them, but it doesn't abide in you. How can you say that? Because the Messiah has come, 
and you rejected him. And what is the Bible telling you? How to recognize the Messiah. So his point is, you can have the information, but it means nothing to you. Now, it'll break the heart of teachers among us. That students can sometimes amazingly write down information on an exam that, that very well reflects what's in the textbook and not have a clue of what they just wrote down. But there it is. You ask the question, I gave you the answer. And you might even say to them, so what does that mean? I don't know. But isn't that the right answer? Well, that's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> and so it's not enough to have information. It's not enough to have a theological aptitude. It's a vital and living relationship with the one the Bible tells us about, the living Lord Jesus Christ. So what he says is, if you don't believe the Bible, if, you don't, if they don't believe the Bible, if they don't believe in the one the Bible is talking about, they don't have life. And so again, I, that's a reminder to us. Don't be satisfied maybe with, oh, I read my Bible every day. Oh, I can quote these verses. Oh, I know Jesus died for my sins and he rose from the dead. It's not enough to be able to recite facts. It's a personal relationship with the living God where Christ abides within us by faith. Well, he goes on to then speak of the scriptures that testify to him more fully in verses 39 to 47. He says, um, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are these which, which testify of me. He says, you, you claim to, you know, you, you read the Bible, you search the scripture. Uh, I think the King James and maybe some other translations will have there, search the scripture. Here, it's the Greek form of the word can be either a command or a statement of fact, an imperative or an indicative. Probably the context, though, is it's, he's just stating a fact. You search the scriptures. You think you have in them eternal life, but they testify of me, he says. And what, is they, what, are they, what does he go on to say? So what he's saying is, what does the Bible tell you about? It's Jesus. If you say you believe the Bible and don't believe in Jesus and who he is, God in the flesh who's come as our Savior, die on the cross and rise from the dead, then you don't believe the Bible. See, there are many a person that will come to your door, knock on your door and say, we believe the Bible. We'd love to have a Bible study with you. But they don't believe what the Bible says about Jesus. They don't believe the Bible, Jesus says. He says, you think in them you have life. That Jewish website I told you about, they say, If now when we sit and study the Torah of which it is said, for it is your life and the lengthening of your days. We study the Torah because in that we have life. That's what they say. Well, they're quoting Deuteronomy 30.20. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days. So, so Jesus says you read your Bible thinking that in reading your Bible you will gain life. But it's not in reading the Bible or memorizing the Bible. It's in knowing the one the Bible talks about. 
But in verse 40, he says what the problem is. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Notice he says, it's, you're not willing. It's a matter of the will. They, are, they choose not to submit to Jesus Christ in faith. In a sense, he's saying, you have the facts before you. But obviously, you don't believe the message of this book because if you believe that message, you would recognize and you would come to me in yielding faith. But instead, they're rejecting him, rebelling against him, accusing him. Verse 41, 42, I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you'll receive. So, so he's saying, you, honor, you want men's honor. And again, the rabbis were all about honoring each other's, ra- other's rabbis and quoting the rabbis and quoting the rabbis. Let me, I'm going to read you kind of a, a rabbinic statement. I'll, try, I'll explain it after I read it. The sages taught... For those who engage in the study of Bible, it is a virtue, but not a complete virtue. For those who engage in the study of Mishnah, that's a, that's a gathering of rabbinic writings, it's a virtue and they receive reward for its study. For those who engage in the study of Talmud, that's a rabbinic commentary on the Mishnah, you have no virtue greater than that. Always pursue the study of Mishnah more than the study of the Talmud. So what do you, go, what, but what, you know what they're saying? Reading the Bible is good. Better to read the rabbis. That's what they're saying. The reading of the Bible is good. Better to read the rabbis. So what does Jesus say? I don't look for man's honor, but you're all about man's honor. You want to honor the rabbis, and you want to be, your, your goal would be to be an exalted rabbi. That's where Saul was before he met the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they wanted man's approval. You know, they wanted to, when you say a prayer, everybody nods, that was a wonderful prayer. When you kept the commandments, that was wonderfully done. They wanted the praise of man and the approval of man. Now, we can stand here and, and, and just rake these rabbis over the coals that lived 2,000 years ago. But we need to be careful because we could do the same thing. It's a constant pressure and temptation to want man's approval. Many a church falls into this pattern. Their goal is to be popular, to be praised by man, to be praised by the culture. And so they, they, they are more and more want to, to use the, the vocabulary of the culture. And they talk about the issues that please the culture. And so for that reason, you're going to see churches more and more across America, churches claiming to be evangelical, Bible-believing, are going soft on the issues of moral purity and moral righteousness. I saw some statements that kind of made the rounds among some churches. Well, well, God whispers about these issues. No, these aren't really big issues. Moral purity and, and, and the absence of gender confusion that is so crazily filling our culture. 
Um, more and more people are saying, well, well, there's a way we can approve that. Because they want man's approval. If you stand up and say, homosexuality is a sin, always. The culture will cancel you. If you put that on Twitter, it disappears. Um, you, will be har- you will be harassed as, as, a, a, as a, a, a racist and a bigot and a hater just for teaching what the Bible says. You heard in Finland, a member of parliament was, was put on trial for hate speech because she posted a picture of the Bible passage speaking about homosexuality on her social media page. And so she was put on trial. Eventually she was exonerated. But can you imagine a member of parliament, like a member of our Congress, being put on trial for hate speech for taking a picture of your Bible and putting it on your social media? I've mentioned before there's a number of ministries, uh, radio ministries in America, Christian, that, that some of the messages they cannot broadcast in Canada, so they have alternative messages for those, those, account, those days uh, because if they speak on these issues in Canada, that's illegal hate speech. And so the pressure is on. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be popular. We want man's nodding approval, and so the pressure is on churches to more and more say things that win man's approval. So the pressure was was there 2,000 years ago. We wrestle with the same thing today. So that's true of churches. That's true of us as individuals. It is hard to stand. And and the issue more and more is going to be, you know, like if you say Jesus is God in in the current culture, well, that's your truth. I'm not going to argue with that. But if you say there's a moral right and wrong, or if you say Jesus is the only way to God, that's hate. And so as a church, may God give us the grace to continue to stand strong and say this is what God's word says. Without apology. Without seeking man's approval. But each of us faces these issues at work. Um, in our schools. Is it Wisconsin? Three kids are, 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 being, uh, are under discipline or, or, and being charged uh, because they used proper pronouns instead of the professed preferred pronouns of, of some student. They're under uh, disciplinary action by the school district for calling a boy he or a girl she. It's going to take courage. In, in our work environments. It's going to take courage in the school environments. With family and friends. How to walk the line of love and grace and yet still moral integrity. It's a challenge. But Jesus said, I don't seek man's honor. And that's a good reminder for us. Whose approval do I seek? Whose smile do I want to see? It's a challenge. We can follow, but Jesus is making it clear you can't have it both ways. 
In verse 44, he says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another, but you don't seek the honor that comes from the only God? But he says in verses 42 and 43, I know you. You do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So what he's saying is, if you have the love of God, you believe in Jesus. Again, there are those out there that say, well, there's many ways you know, um, to salvation. For us, it's Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you do not love, you do not know God. Verses 45 to 47, he says, Do not think I shall accuse you to the Father. He said, there, he's, he's, he's boldly confronting them. He says, but, but I'm not going to confuse you. I'm not going to accuse you before God's throne. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, he who wrote about me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He's saying, God, you know who's going to convict you before God's throne? Moses. Because you claim to believe his books, and he's going to say, oh, no, you don't. Because I pointed to you, to this man, to this Savior, to this Messiah, and you wouldn't believe in him. Don't you blame that on me. And so Moses will stand, he says, and, and bring accusation before the throne. I say that, and I've often mentioned Spurgeon's mother, remember, around the kitchen table. And I guess by the time he was 10 years old, she lit, she lit into him. And she said, she made it very clear. One day you will stand before God's throne, and still you have not believed in him. And if you continue in your unbelief and come before him, I myself will stand witness before God and declare I shared the gospel with you and you wouldn't believe. Can you imagine that? You know, imagine, Mom. <laughs> but she was making it clear. This is serious. And what he is saying is the same thing about Moses. You, you claim Moses. Moses will be the one who, who's your prosecutor. You can just see the picture of him opening up the scroll. Look here. It says this. Look here. It says this. You wouldn't believe. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. And so for someone who says, I believe the Bible, but they don't believe in Jesus of the Bible. Again, lots of people say they'll believe in Jesus. But the Jesus who's described in the Bible, what did John say? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was, was God. The Word was with God. God in the flesh come among us to live and to die for our sin, rise from the dead, Lord and Savior, coming King. If you don't believe in the Bible, Jesus, you don't believe the Bible. Now, one of the things, the applications that strikes me today is uh, there's a movement among some uh, Christian circles that, that really want to talk about, uh, uh, like one of the ways they'll talk about Hebraic roots. And they'll say, you know, you really can't understand the Old Testament unless you, you read the rabbis. What does Jesus say? The rabbis don't understand the Old Testament. If they, understood the Old, uh, if they understood the Old Testament, they'd believe in Jesus. So it marvels me to see Christians going to unbelievers and saying, this unbeliever better understands the Bible than, than you do, who know Christ as Savior. Jesus said, oh, no, they don't. 
They're rejecting the Bible because they reject the one who is the message of the Bible. And so there's a test. If a person doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior, he's not a reliable guide to understand the Bible. Now, I read some commentaries sometimes by unbelievers or liberals. And often I'm careful not to quote them to you, or at least not tell you who it is, because I don't want somebody to read some of these guys. But I can read with the sermon and see what's wrong with what they're saying. But Jesus is saying, you claim you know Moses? Moses will stand at the judgment and condemn you because you did not believe his word. If you believe the Bible, you believe Jesus. That simple. And if you don't believe in the Bible, in, in the Jesus of the Bible, you don't believe the Bible. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, then you will not stand approved before God. A couple thoughts on some of these issues. Adrian Rogers, Baptist preacher, went to be with the Lord some years ago. He said, it is better to be divided by the truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is not love and it is not friendship if we fail to declare the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is impossible to find anyone in the Bible who has a power for God who did not have enemies and was not hated. It's better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with a multitude. It is better to ultimately succeed with the truth than to be temporarily than to temporarily succeed with a lie. I think we need to understand and live that truth. Of course, I can't let you go without a quote from Mr. Spurgeon. We will modify nothing. If truth bears a stern aspect, we will not veil it. If there be an offense in the cross, we will not conceal it. This shall be my answer to those who would have us attune ourselves to the spirit of the age. Now that's in the late 1800s. Now in, in, the, in the next millennium, we're still wrestling with these pressures. I know no spirit but one, and he is unchanging in every age. Your extravagance of doubt shall have no influence over us except to make us bind the gospel more closely to our hearts. If we gave you an inch, you would take a mile, and so no inch shall be given you. Our resolve is to live for the book as we read it, for the gospel as we rest in it, for the Lord as he made atonement, for the kingdom as it ruleth over all. I beg every trembling Christian to take heart. Put on his Lord's livery and advance to the fray. Come out now. You never did before. Come out if there is any manliness in you in these days of blasphemy and rebuke. And so the challenge is Jesus is standing lovingly, clearly firm. There's lots of grace. He's laying out his arguments clearly, but he's making it clear. You can't have it both ways. There's only one right answer, and that's Jesus Christ. Are you clear on that? And does God's truth, does the living Christ abide within you? Or have you been satisfied with man's traditions and with religion? And if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, join with me in praying for courage and strength to stand unwavering 
as the gale winds of pressure are only going to grow. Father, I thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who lives before us this example of courageous commitment to uncompromising truth. May we be faithful to our Lord and found standing with him. Lord, if any here have yet to believe on him, show them their need and the urgency of the call. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.